We've all witnessed the uh, irrational enthusiasm and the mindless frenzy when political leaders are elected. Politicians promise better times economically, politically, socially. Some promise hope and change. Uh, world leaders uh, strive to come together in a common goal, a common purpose to bring peace on earth. And we all long for a better day. But we are naive to think that human leaders can bring that about. We ought not to become too optimistic when the party or the man we voted for wins or too pessimistic when the party we voted for loses. Man's efforts to bring about a better world are well intended but ultimately doomed. And the reason is this, that human leaders are sinful and selfish and the people they govern, you and me, were sinful and selfish. But the Bible does predict a future time of universal peace and harmony where all conflict and evil and sin and wars will be unknown. Before that time comes, there will be a period of intense persecution, intense evil, such as this world has never seen. It's called the Great Tribulation. Details that are found uh, in the Old Testament prophets in Matthew 24 and Revelation 6 through 9. John MacArthur says, In the future, God will pour out his wrath and judgment on a scale never before seen. Only after the earth is utterly devastated and unbelievers judge will a better day come. The blessed earthly kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now the focus of our time, of our time, uh, or this time of the year, is the babe in the manger. And the Bible says he is Emmanuel, God with us. The Christmas scene, we've seen it on postcards, we've seen it enacted in movies. Jesus seems to be helpless and weak, as all babies are. But the same baby that is the object of so much attention and sentimentality at Christmas time will return to earth as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And that picture is presented numerous times in the Bible, but it is basically ignored by our culture. Our culture is much more comfortable with a cuddly, cute, harmless infant in a feeding trough. That kind of Jesus they can tolerate. That kind of Jesus is harmless. But Jesus is anything but harmless. In Revelation 19, the portion that Pastor Dan read a few minutes ago, he is called. This is the glorified Jesus who has been up in heaven since his ascension, is returning as King of kings and Lord of lords. All of the earthly leaders this world has ever had do not come close to Jesus Christ. And he will succeed where everybody else has failed. 
He will reign over this world as judge and as sovereign Lord. His rule will be righteous, just, wise, and worldwide. I want to take a few moments to sort of walk through some Old Testament passages and then we'll land on Revelation 14 and Revelation 19 as we talk about the future judgment and glory of Christ. So if you want to follow me, you can do that. If you want to sleep, you can do that. Psalm, the, the second psalm, is an interchange between the Son and the Father. Psalm 2. A question, why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. Against the Lord would be against the Father and his anointed would be the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And these kings of the world are filled with pride and arrogance and they say, let us burst their bonds asunder and cast away their cords from us. We will not have this son, this Messiah to reign. And God does not sweat it out. He does not rub his hands. He's not worried. In fact, he laughs. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. He will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury. And God the Father says, As for me, I have set my king, the Messiah, on Zion, my holy hill. And the Lord said to me, this is the Father talking to the Son, You are my Son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. In other words, there's going to come a time, it's mentioned in Revelation 19 and other passages, where all earthly rule will be smashed, destroyed. That is a very hopeful time for us because uh, I think sometimes we too are like the world in that we hold out the hope of this world with political leaders and we should never, never do that. We get too distressed when somebody wins an election and we didn't want them to win the election. This is all within the sovereign plan of God. In Isaiah chapter 2, you might want to turn there, Isaiah chapter 2, 1 to 4. We'll find that the earthly rule of the king will be a peaceful rule, a just and a righteous rule. Chapter 2, 1 to 4. The word that Isaiah, the son of Amos, said concerning Judah and Jerusalem. It will come to pass in the latter days. By the way, the latter days in Scripture would be the, would be the whole church age. From the ascension of Christ back to heaven to his second coming. It will come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains. Referring to Jerusalem. And shall be lifted up above the hills, and all nations shall flow to it. And many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the house of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, that we may walk in his paths. Now, certainly that is not happening now, because Jerusalem 
is a location and represents uh, a nation that certainly many in the Arab nations uh, despise and want to eliminate. But one day all the nations will look to Jerusalem and to the anointed of the Lord who reigns from, from there. Then, of course, a familiar uh, Christmas passage is Isaiah chapter 9, 6 and 7. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. That's history. That happened. But now the next phrase. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. That has not happened. Christ has never reigned as king, as lord in this world. His name, wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. No historical point where Christ did that. On the throne of David over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice, with righteousness. From this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts shall do this. So we have a reference briefly to the first coming of Christ, but then we have several verses that deal with the second coming of Christ. We know that Jesus was bodily raised from the the dead. He walked on this earth for 40 days. Then he ascended to heaven. We find that account in the book of Acts, chapter 1. In verse 6, so this is after the resurrection of Christ and he's still in the world. And the disciples asked Jesus a very important question. Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? So there was always that hope that that would happen. Because the Romans had been in power, well, since about 100 years before the time of Christ. So are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Because Israel does not rule over other nations. Other nations rule over Israel. And he said, it is not for you to know the times or the seasons. Don't try to figure it out. As unfortunately, there are some enthusiastic but misguided Christian leaders who get out their calculators and their computers and try to figure out when Jesus is coming back. You can't do that. And you shouldn't try to do it. It just makes the whole Christian movement look silly. It is not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father is put in his own authority. Now he gives him the commission. He gives him marching orders. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. And while he's saying this thing, these words, and the disciples are there watching him, he suddenly begins to ascend. I've often wondered... What did the disciples feel like? He's there talking to them, and then slowly he ascends up to heaven. Uh, They were befuddled. Perhaps they were fearful. Perhaps they were questioning what on the earth is going on. Because Jesus is disappearing into the clouds. And an angel comes and announces to them, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? The same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go. He disappeared in the clouds. He will descend in the clouds. His ascension was literal. It was bodily. 
His second coming is literal and is some bodily. Jeremiah 23, 5, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch. That's the Messiah. He shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judas will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. This is the name by which he will be called the Lord our righteousness. Now, there are scores and scores and scores of Old Testament verses that bring out this truth. We come to the, to the New Testament, and what does it say about the return of Christ and the coming kingdom? Well, the angel Gabriel speaks to Mary in Luke chapter 1, verse 30. Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Behold, you will conceive in your womb, bear a son, you shall call his name Jesus, for he will be great. And will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord will give to him the throne of his father Jacob, of his father David. And of course, that throne, that place of rule, that authority was promised to David's offspring in the Old Testament. He shall reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there shall be no end. We pray the Lord's Prayer. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The will of God is always done in heaven. The will of God is rarely done on earth. The will of God will be done when he returns to reign as king because all hearts will love him. Sadly, I think in many churches they recite the liturgy, the Lord's Prayer, but I wonder how many have an understanding as to what they're saying. Father in heaven, hallowed, be holy, be counted as holy is your name. Your kingdom come. I think that that's a prayer for the second coming of Jesus Christ. Now we realize that there is a spiritual kingdom that all who trust in Christ enter. We enter into the kingdom of God. Christ said to Nicodemus that... Uh, you have to be born again to see the kingdom of God. So there's a spiritual aspect of the kingdom. But there's a physical aspect of that kingdom also, which has not yet become a reality in this world. When he comes back, Revelation 12, verse 5 says, He will rule the nations with a rod of iron. Now I want us to look now in Revelation 14. I just wanted to establish the fact that the Old Testament in, in countless more verses than I have mentioned and the New Testament all predict the second coming of Jesus Christ. Now, the Old Testament people and the Old Testament prophets did not see, I don't think, two comings of, of Christ. They saw his first coming and they assumed that at that point he would set up his kingdom and reign. We know that that didn't happen, but we also know there was a promise given by the Lord himself. The Apostle Paul mentions it uh, several times that he will return. So we turn now to Revelation chapter 14. And I just want to take a few highlights. We can't spend any time in this text. Verse 1 says that, I looked and behold on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000 who had his name and the Father's name written on their foreheads. So this appearance of the Lamb on Mount Zion is a monumental moment in redemptive history. 
Who are the 144,000? Ask a Jehovah's Witness, and they will say, well, it's the first 144,000 who joined our movement. And since there are a few million in that uh, false cult, um, they, uh, they believe that the 144,000 were the first ones, and now they have more, of course. But, but who are these people? Well, that's not a mystery at all. Because Revelation chapter 7 tells us who the 144,000 are. 12,000 from the 12 tribes of Israel. And it's listed right in the Bible. So, they're not Gentiles. They're not you and me. There are a group of people, 12,000 from each of the tribes, that will be saved at the beginning of the tribulation and will be preserved. They will not die. They will not be killed. They'll live throughout the whole of the tribulation period. 144,000. They are alongside the Lamb and they're singing the song of redemption. There's going to be a lot of singing in heaven. Now, I don't want to offend any in our worship teams, but it'll be better than what we have here. And we have the best, I think, here in our, in our church. All heaven will overflow, MacArthur says, with praise because God's redemptive work culminating in the return of Christ is accomplished. In verse 4, they follow the Lamb wherever he goes. Total, complete dedication to the Lord. No rivals, no refusals will mar their devotion to Jesus Christ. And in their mouth, no lie will be found. They are honest and obedient. They are called blameless. Blameless doesn't mean sinless. It means fully devoted to the Lord. We are to be blameless. But none of us is sinless. There's not a person who has ever lived on earth who has been sinless except Jesus. You and I are to be holy. We are to be obedient. We are to be submissive to the Lord Jesus Christ. We're not sinless. First John tells us, if you say you are without sin, you lie and do, and do not tell the truth. And 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all un unrighteousness. But we are to be followers of Christ. John 10, 27, my sheep hear my voice, I know them, and they follow me. So like the people mentioned in Revelation 14, we are to... Recognize the voice of the shepherd as Jesus speaks in the word of God and we are to follow him. Not challenge him, not debate with him, but follow him. Notice the message of the angel in verse uh, 6. I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. Having an everlasting gospel, this tells me that the gospel that this angel will, will proclaim is the same gospel that we proclaim. There are several different phrases used for the gospel. The gospel of the kingdom, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the gospel of God, the gospel of the grace of God, the gospel of the glory of Christ, the gospel of salvation, the gospel of peace, and the glorious gospel. It is eternal because there's no substitute. We don't add to it. We don't subtract from it. There are no equals to it. We cannot tweak it to make it better. 
uh, Paul got after the Galatians because they were believing a different gospel. The gospel we proclaim is inspired by God. And we are not authorized to change any aspect of the gospel. Salvation is not a matter of choosing a religion or belief system that appeals to us. The issue is not personal preference. I like this about the gospel, but I don't like that about the gospel. I like what Jesus says here, but I don't like what Jesus says there. I agree with the Apostle Paul when he talks about this issue, but I certainly don't agree with him when he says that men are to be heads of the home and elders in the church. Salvation is a matter of divine revelation. That's the gospel, the gospel of divine revelation. Jesus commanded his followers to to make disciples of all nations. Notice he didn't say, let's not offend anybody. Let's not uh, get anybody upset with our proclamations. We have to accept people. We have to accept their belief system. Uh, And I'm sure God will accept them even if they reject the gospel. So a lot of people think this way. A lot of Christians think this way. So Islam is valid and Hinduism is valid and native spirituality is valid and any self-concocted religious system is valid. It's all the same to me. That's what people imagine Jesus saying. But it's not all the same. There's only salvation through Jesus, through the gospel. The gospel is addressed to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people. This answers the question, will the gospel be preached during the tribulation? Yes, it will. Probably by the 144,000, by the two witnesses we hear about later on in the book of Revelation who are killed and then they rise again, and by the angel who in the heavens, declares the everlasting gospel. He proclaims with a loud voice, fear God, give glory to him. This is the ultimate purpose of our existence. It's not to make money, not to have a great family, not to do a host of other things. The ultimate purpose of our existence is to glorify God. And whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Because the hour of his judgment has come. The book of Revelation has many, many references to the wrath of God. References that run a chill down your spine. Jesus was outspoken about the horrible nature of hell. And to be true to Scripture, we have to proclaim the mercy and grace of God and the judgment and wrath of God. We have no right to make a choice there. We proclaim both. Now, in this age of grace, we stress the grace of God. But we also recognize that if somebody does not respond to Jesus Christ, if they do not believe, they will experience the wrath of God. Now, verse 8, interesting phrase is used. Revelation 14, verse 8. Another angel, a second follows, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. 
she who made all the nations drink the wine of her passion, of her sexual um, immorality. The details about the fall of Babylon are found in Revelation 17 and 18. Uh, Babylon was a place in the Old Testament where, remember they tried to build this tower where all religions could come together and forget about their individual differences and all speak the same language and worship whatever God they had decided to worship and God confounded the languages so they couldn't do that. That was a Babylon. Babylon is always seen as something false and dangerous and misguided and, and untrue. Will this be rebuilt Babylon, which is in Iraq? Uh, will it be another wicked city, which is the headquarters of the Antichrist? It is a location... But it also represents the Antichrist's worldwide political, economic, and religious um, empire. And this massive destruction will take place. Jesus will destroy it. The repetition underscores the finality and the certainty of Babylon's judgment. Now, if you look in Revelation 18, this comes as a great shock to the godless world. Apparently, the economic capital of the world at that time is Babylon. The end time Babylon, where the Antichrist reigns from. And so all the commerce depends upon Babylon being prosperous and in charge. The entire world had their hopes and dreams set on Babylon. And now it's going up in flames. And the world is shocked and dismayed. Look in Revelation chapter 18, verse 9. Alas, you great city, you mighty city, Babylon, for in a single hour your judgment has come. See, this place, this location, which is probably where the Antichrist rules from, seemed that it could not be defeated. It was so powerful. And the Antichrist had abilities by the power of Satan to do miracles. And the merchants of the earth weep and mourn for her, since no one buys their cargo anymore. Cargo gold, silver, jewels, and a whole bunch of things are mentioned, referring to the commerce that is taking place in the world. The merchants of these wares, verse 15, who gain wealth from her, see, once the wealth starts to, once Babylon is burned, it goes up in flames, the merchants say, no more prosperity for us, no more business for us. The merchants of those wares who gain wealth from her will stand afar off in fear of her torment, weeping and mourning aloud. Alas, alas, for the great city that was clothed in fine linen and purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls. For in a single hour, all this wealth has been laid waste. So it goes on with this grief and mourning. And the world is overwhelmed by what they see happening to a place they thought could never be brought down. So we have the reaction of ungodly merchants and ungodly people to the destruction of Babylon. But we have a, world, a word to the saints. Verse 20, rejoice over her, O heaven, you saints and apostles and prophets, for God has given judgment for you um, against her. 
God's wrath is not an impulsive outburst of divine emotion that's aimed whimsically at people. It is a settled, deliberate, merciless, graceless response of a righteous God against sinners. God doesn't blow a gasket. God doesn't lose his temper and lash out. His wrath is measured. It is based on sound reasons, rebellion and sin and wickedness. There's a reference here in verse 10 and 11 to fire and brimstone. That occurs several times in the Bible. The unsaved will be tormented. Notice verse 10 of, of chapter 14. He also will drink the wine of God's wrath, being poured out full strength into the cup of his anger. He will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of his holy angels. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. They have no rest day or night, these worshipers of the beast and his image who receive the mark of his name. Now, this is the day, a couple days before Christmas. And you may be thinking, Pastor, we thought you would uh, preach an uplifting message of peace on earth and the love of God. Well, Dan gave me this, Pastor Dan gave me this title for the message. So uh, I'm doing what I was told to do, you know. But I think, I think that too often people get caught up in the sentimentality of baby Jesus. They forget about this stuff. This is real. This is going to happen. And when Jesus returns, he will return. His second coming is radically different from his first coming. First coming, little baby in a manger. And we all see this cute and cuddly Jesus and the shepherds and Mary and Joseph. There's nothing cute and cuddly about this Jesus. Nothing at all. I want us to flip over to uh, chapter 19. Pastor Dan read about the heavens being opened. And behold, the rider on the white horse. The rider on the white horse earlier on in Revelation is the Antichrist. The the rider on the white horse here is the Messiah. Because he's called faithful, true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like flames of fire. This, This is a moral description of Jesus. Speaks of his penetrating knowledge. On his head are many diadems. These are crowns of royalty. He has a name written that no one knows but himself. Now, along the years, there have been people who have tried to figure out, no, I, I, I know this name. I say, why bother? It says no one knows the name. Whenever I see one of these prophecy buffs try to tell us what the Bible says we can't know, I get upset. It says no man knows the name, except Jesus knows the name. So I'm content to leave it as a mystery. He's called, his robe is dipped with blood. That's the blood of judgment. He's called the word of God, which reminds us of the gospel of John. Because the same 
man writes the book of Revelation. The armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, I believe this is the rapture glorified saints, are returning with Jesus. Out of his mouth, out of the mouth of Jesus, comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This expresses the sovereign triumph of the Messiah over all of his foes. His absolute rule as King and Lord during the thousand years. This is really not a battle. This is really not a war. Because it's over in a moment. Christ, by his omnipotent power, just eliminates the enemy. The Antichrist and all who are in league with him, he just smashes them. Doesn't take any time at all. They will try to resist him. This takes place at the Battle of Armageddon. They will try to resist him, but they can't. And notice, we don't fight with Christ. We don't carry swords. Jesus does. We, we come back not to engage in warfare, but to engage in reigning with Jesus in this world. Verse uh, 21, the rest were slain by the sword that came out of the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds of, were gorged with their flesh. It is a terrible thing to fall into the hands of a living God. And we must not comfort ourselves that certainly somebody who we love very much, but who made no pretense of being a Christian, well, they'll be in heaven. No. But little grandmother who we loved and cuddled us, and if she knows Jesus, she'll be in heaven. Yeah. If she doesn't, she won't. Let's not get sentimental when it comes to the destiny of uh, people. It is appointed to man once to die. There's no, one re- no reincarnation. Once to die, and then the judgment. So, I think when we read a portion like this, first of all, we, we glory that Jesus is alive and he's coming back again and he will reign in this world. We, we look for solutions in economics, in politics. We don't see any solutions. They're not there. Not with man, anyways. But when Jesus returns to sit on David's throne, he will rule over the whole world in righteousness. And those of us who know Jesus will rule with him. Jesus told the disciples, no man knows the time, the hour when I'll return. I know we have these computer buffs who try to calculate it all out and figure it out. They've all been wrong. The world was supposed to end last Friday. Obviously it didn't. We're still here. But it will end one day, and our lives will end one day. The Bible doesn't say that there's a second chance after death. It, it doesn't teach that. It's appointed the man wants to die, and then the judgment. So my plea to you this Christmas time is, yes, 
Admire the babe in the manger, but don't let your thoughts stay there. He lived a sinless life. He proclaimed the truth of God. He died on a cruel cross. He rose from the dead, and he's coming again. See the Christ of the Bible and place your faith in the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your truth. And we shudder at the concept of hell. And uh, it's at points like this where we'd like to sort of eliminate certain teaching from the Bible. It just is uncomfortable. It upsets us. Yes, it is upsetting. It upsets me. But I have no right to alter your truth only to proclaim it. Lord, you know our hearts. You know if we truly know you and love you. You know where our affections lie. You know what our treasure is. This Christmas, may we treasure Jesus. May we exalt him as King of kings and Lord of lords in our lives. We pray in his name. Amen. Thank mm-hmm. you.